J.C. Ryle, many of you are familiar with, a renowned Anglican bishop, wrote a book of biographical sketches on the ministries of great British Christian leaders such as George Whitfield and John Wesley and others. And at the beginning of that compilation, Ryle offers us this telling overview. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, They taught constantly the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. They never allowed for a moment that any church membership or religious profession was the proof of a man's being a true Christian if he lived an ungodly life. A true Christian, they maintained, must always be known by his fruits. And those fruits must be plainly manifest and unmistakable in all relations of life. No fruits, no grace was the unvarying tenor of their preaching. You know, I just feel like that today there is a great need for that same perspective. Many professing believers today think that manifesting spiritual fruit is optional, that it is not a necessary and natural part of genuine salvation. Well, the great apostle Paul, Paul saw it, saw it very differently. He says in Romans 7, 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, listen to this, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This wasn't an option for the Apostle Paul. Godliness through the bearing of spiritual fruit are so important for believers, that is such an important fact for believers, that Paul often prayed for his converts to grow in godliness and Christian maturity. Steady progress in sanctification, which, by the way, is in huge debates among the theological hierarchy today. Um, you can see Pastor Kohler when he gets back and gets some blogs if you want to read on this. But I'm telling you, from my perspective, from the perspective of the Scripture, steady progress in sanctification is crucial. And without a life of integrity, it is impossible. Our desire to live godly will make the difference between our susceptibility to compromise and our capability to stand firm in the faith. Now, you may wonder, well, why in the world would I be suspect to compromise? Well, that's a very easy answer to that. Me and some guys came across the answer a few weeks ago. You know what it is? It's because we're a messed up people living in a messed up world. And therefore, we are suspect to compromise. And on another note, though, much more glorious than that, is that through the gracious filling of the Spirit that indwells us as believers, we have the capacity and the capability to stand firm in the faith. So let's look at the progress of godliness that the Apostle Paul lays out for us. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And here Paul prays for the spiritual progress of his people. As a faithful pastor, he was concerned that believers in the church at Philippi and for that matter, believers everywhere, including us today, yes, including us today in Faith Community Church, he, Paul would have us pursue five essentials of righteous living. And those are love, excellence, integrity, good works, and the glory of God. Each of these essentials, qualities, is sequential. And each virtue lays the foundation for the next and actually helps produce the next one. Uh, in Philipp Let's read Philippians um, Chapter 1, let's start in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 11. Paul says in Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of our God. Well, Paul prayed that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With this text, we can see several characteristics of of love that Paul prayed that you and I would also have manifest in our lives. And the first one is he prays that we would have a divine love. Now, we know you may be saying, well, how do I know this is a divine love? Well, we know that it's a divine love because God's the one that provides it, and God's the one that asks us to increase it in our lives. That's not something we can conjure up. This is a gift from God. The Bible makes it clear that love originates from God. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, what? Was stirred up by us? No, it was, has been poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In 1 John four nineteen, the apostle writes, We love because he first loved us. Paul's desire... Paul desires all Christians to express more fully the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts. Secondly, this is a decisive love. Decisive love is the kind of love indicated directly by the word here in the Greek, which is agape. And this is the highest expression of love that's ever mentioned in the New Testament. It is love that is determined by the will. It is, and it does not depend, and this is a key point for us, it does not depend on the world's criteria for love, such as attractiveness, emotions, and sentimentality. Many times believers compromise God's standard of agape love and blindly follow the world's demands that we just feel as a lover, right? That we feel positive towards the beloved. But that love is based on impulse and not on choice. And impulse love actually characterizes the type of love that a husband may announce to his wife that he's planning to divorce her because he has fallen in love with another woman and I can't help it. That is impulsive love. Impulsive love is completely contrary to God's decisive love, which is decisive because he is in control and he has a purpose in mind. In John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his son... He gave his son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That verse is not an expose of God's loss of control of his emotions. He didn't love because you and I were so irresistible. As we were singing those songs, I I don't know about you, but my past is horrid. And God did not love me because I was such the irresistible, loving, lovable type of guy. There was nothing appealing in any of us. And he sacrificially chose to love us anyway. One of my favorite hymns that we sing here, and I remember the first time we sang it, I was floored. I asked Darby the next day, I emailed him and said, please send me the words of that song. They were so impactful in my life. 
And, it, and to me, it just really explains this love of God. And it, we sang it a few weeks ago. It's simply called The Love of God, written by Frederick Lehman. And it's writ- it was written originally, uh, the, the lyrics were based on a Jewish poem that was written in, in 1050. And Frederick Lehman says, One day, during short intervals of inattention to our work, we picked up a scrap of paper and seated upon an empty lemon box pushed against the wall with a stub pencil, and we added the first two stanzas in chorus of the song. Since the third stanza from the Jewish poem had been penciled, on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum after he'd been carried to his grave, the general opinion was that this inmate had written these words in a momentary, uh, in a moment of sanity. Listen to these words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever endure the saints' and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't that awesome? Well, you know, many times when I think about the love of God, I can't help but think of 1 John 15, 13, in the words of our Savior, when he said, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, when you and I develop sacrificial attitudes like that, we will actively reach out to others and meet their needs. When we begin to develop that kind of lifestyle, we begin to get out of ourselves and become focused on other people. And our wants and desires wane, and our love for other people begins to show forth in our lives. That's what decisive love does. Well, thirdly, this is a dynamic love. Now, this is the type of love that all believers actually have. The Philippians' love was already grown, but Paul wanted... It to expand, so he says that he wanted it to abound still more and more. Love that is part of a genuine Christian life, one that's progressing in holiness, progressing in holiness, will in its essence be dynamic. If we're serious about maturing in our walk with Christ, we will never be content with the static kind of love, nor the status quo in any other phase of our lives. That, by the way, is how you begin to build a life of integrity. Raise your standard. Stop settling for the status quo. Well, everybody else is doing it. Big deal, right? Raise the standard. Let's go to the heights of glory. Our Lord never settled for the status quo. He set the standard regarding dynamic love. And we're given an example of this, in my opinion, in Ephesians 4.32. doesn't really talk that much about love there, but it says, be kind to one another. Well, that's a novel concept when you're driving in Atlanta traffic, right? (laughs) 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The ultimate example of that verse, I think, is the humble, sacrificial love that Christ modeled for his disciples when he bowed down and washed their feet. That ought to serve as our motivation to follow his model of service by extending love and seeking ways to minister to each other. Well, next we see that this is a deep love. It was a deep love grounded, as he tells us here, in real knowledge. This word knowledge um, in, in its uh, primary sense is not so much knowing something about something, but rather it's the kind of full innate knowing that comes from experience or personal relationship. One commentator notes Paul's dependence on the Old Testament for this concept, and he points out, quote, In the Old Testament, as well as in the writings of Paul, knowledge was not a fixed amount, but rather something that developed in the life of people as they were obedient. Well, in other words, love from God is regulated, catch this now, by a knowledge of his word, which means that it will be anchored deeply on convictions that are rooted out of his word. Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by what? Your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another, another earnestly from a pure heart. When we're obedient to and controlled by divine truth, we can love to the highest degree. And next, lastly, this is a discerning love. Finally, Paul prays that the Christian's love also be typified, he says, by all discernment. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. And commentator Gordon Fee says, in secular Greek, this word denotes moral understanding based on experience, something close to moral insight. A discerning love will have moral perception. It will have insight and practical application of the deep knowledge to which Paul just referred. Well, those who neglect discernment often become what? Victims of false teaching and unscriptural practices, many times sweeping other poorly taught people right along with them in error. And I've seen this happen. Well, I wasn't there, but a friend of mine called, and he had a a guy that was teaching a lot of people, and this guy was getting his theology from TV. Now, there's a few good preachers on TV, but not many. And you can guess, you know, there was no discernment involved and the the, uh, knowledge that he was getting was not good and he swept people along with him until my friend came along and just said, you know, that's wrong. And praise the Lord, uh, he answered prayer and the guy repented and he went back to the group of people that he'd been leading falsely and asked for forgiveness and, and repented away from that teaching. So much of that could be avoided if believers would seek love that is regulated by careful scrutiny and sensitive adherence to God's truth, his word. We have got to be known more as a people of the word of God. Those who love with discernment not only maintain their own integrity, but also protect the integrity of the church. Uh, Next we see with that integrity of the church that Paul wants us to be people who are pursuing excellence. All believers who are controlled by divine love will also want to seek and approve what is excellent, as he tells us. So Paul continued, and he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now, this is a kind of a tricky word here. 
Here Paul goes beyond one's ability to discern between good and evil, between truth and error. He is now concerned that believers be able to distinguish, catch this, between what is better and what is best. That's what that word really means. Well, this is okay. Yeah, but Paul wants us to go further, and he wants us to have the best. Something, actually, that few profession Christians seem to be able to do these days. Wisely choosing the best of alternatives over merely the good enables us to set priorities and focus our time and energy on what's really important. There's a lot of good work out there, right? But we want to be doing the best. We want to distinguish intelligently between the good and the best and make choices with integrity. And if we're going to do that, guess what? We have to be a people that thinks. We've become a non-thinking society. We've become a, a society that wants to amuse rather than what? Muse. Now, when I tried to find this, because I am not an English scholar, as you could probably already tell, but this works for me. Like when we say we're millennialists, and we're not all millennialists, when you put an A in front of an English word, it negates the word that comes after that, right? We're a people that want to be amused. In other words, we don't want to think. Entertain me. But, you know, matter of fact, the word muse is hardly ever even used anymore. It means to think deeply. God, the way that we're going to walk a life of excellence, choosing the good, the better, or the best, is to muse, to think deeply. And it's imperative that we carefully respond with our minds and not impulsively according to our emotion or our mood or our, our feelings. But <clears throat> unfortunately, many in the church today are not responding carefully and thoughtfully, but instead are responding on their feelings. And sadly, very, very sadly, many are being prompted by Christian counselors to respond to their feelings by asking questions, how do you feel? I hope if you counsel people, that's not in your repertoire of words. You know, what do you think, right? That's a better question to ask people. Because if we hope to succeed in the pursuit of excellence and become people of integrity, we have definitely got to exercise our minds over our feelings. You know, this has a really intense practical application in our lives to examine or to test, we could say, what is before us so as to determine what is excellent or the best. Now, originally, this was in, in, in uh, New Testament times, this was to determine, for example, which metal was better which had more value, or which livestock was better, which one had less blemishes, which one hadn't been hit by a, a wagon train, you know, so the meat's in, in better shape. But here it has to do with our lives as Christians. This ability includes not only distinguishing right from wrong, but the best from the second best. Life for everyone, and especially for believers, is a series of choices. Every day, you and I go through a process where we make choices. We choose what we choose day to day as well, as many of you know, will actually shape the course of your life for many, many, many years, right? Think back, right? Foolish choices will leave us unprepared for the coming Messiah. And it's not... You know, or it is the little choices that determine our spiritual vitality because they in turn govern the bigger choices. Most of us have little trouble distinguishing in the big issues, right? I mean, we know that murder is wrong. We know that stealing is wrong. We know that justice 
and, and righteousness are the right thing, but where we struggle is in the gray areas of life. In, in the gray areas, choices involve a range of options that are not so clearly morally cut out for us, right? It is here that we find difficulty in discerning the best. It is there then when we must dive into God's word and discern what is excellent, what is best. Well, Paul gives us a lot of other verses in the New Testament that show us that we got to be thinking people. A few of them, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By your feelings? No, of course not. By the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? In the word of God. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're in Ephesians 5. Walk as children of light. Trying to feel good? No. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, Paul says. Or Ephesians 5 again. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men but is wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, of course, the classic on thinking, Ephesians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. First Thessalonians 5, examine everything carefully. What do you think that means? Examine everything carefully, right? Holding fast to that which is good. What Paul's driving at here is that you and I should be pursuing lives of integrity. The solid, unwavering pursuit of the divine love done with spirit-controlled excellence will invariably lead us to a life of integrity. Paul's prayer continues in verse 10 here to stress the interconnectedness of those essential virtues. He says, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And this is speaking of spiritual integrity with its basic components of purity and blamelessness. Spiritual integrity means that a believer is a person who's not, or I'm sorry, who is an integrated whole, one who reflects the fact in every area of life. Not just some areas of life, every area of life. I don't like that. You know, I mean, I can come here on Sunday morning and put on a smiley face, and I can reflect uh, an integrated whole, you know, to you guys. I can hold that together for a few hours on Sunday morning. But what about Monday morning when I wake up? What about Saturday afternoon when I'm maybe doing what I want to do and my family's at home? Yes, even those areas. Every area of life. The concept of integrity can be explained perhaps best with an illustration of baking a blueberry pie. My daughter blessed me last Sunday on Father's Day and made me the best blueberry pie I'd ever eaten in my life. Now, I've got a trick. She told me it was. She wouldn't tell me until after I tasted it, but if you ladies want to know, I'll tell you after the service. But, you know, if you gather up all the ingredients that you're going to make a blueberry pie with and just throw them into the pan and shove the pan in the oven set on whatever temperature you think might be best, you know what? You're not going to have a blueberry pie like the one I had. You may have mush, blueberry mush, but it's not going to be a blueberry pie. You have to mix all of the ingredients very thoroughly in the pan and follow the instructions. Well, of course, you know, a similar fashion, you can't generate spiritual integrity unless you wisely apply or wisely mix the things of God's, all the principles of God's word into all aspects of our lives. 
Nothing about us should be unrelated to biblical truth. Absolutely nothing. We should have no cracks between the areas of our lives. We should have no impurities in our lives for they would make us less than completely genuine. And that's the kind of genuineness Paul desires for the Philippians, to be completely genuine. So first he describes this using the word pure. Pure, to describe the genuineness of character. The New American Standard has the word sincere. And in the original language, this could have meant one of two things. Both work perfectly to explain the, uh, the concept for us. The first one is it could originally have meant the picture or could have pictured the sifting of grain, which, you know, sifts out the stuff that you don't want to eat. For us, it would sift out the impurities in our life. And, and we would be a whole, complete Christian with all areas of our lives affected. The same thing with sifting wheat. You only want the grain. The rest of the stuff needs to be blown away. But another word, probably the best one to help us explain this, word pure is a compound word in the Greek that means one is sun, the other is to judge. And when you put it together, it means testing by sunlight. And James uh, Montgomery Voice, in his commentary on Philippians, he, he wrote what this practically meant to the people in Paul's day. He says, in ancient times, the finest pottery was thin. It had a clear color and it brought a high price. Fine pro- pottery was very fragile both before and after firing, and this pottery would often crack in the oven. Cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling cracks with hard, pearly wax that would blend in the color of the pottery. This made the cracks practically undetectable in the shops, especially when painted or glazed. But the wax was immediately detected if the pottery was held up to the light, especially held up to sunlight. In that case, the cracks would show up darker. It was said that the artificial element was detected by sun testing. Honest dealers made their fine pottery product by the caption, I'm sorry, they marked their finer products with the caption sincera, meaning pure, without wax. Even as it was for the customers in those days looking at pottery, You and I need to test ourselves with the sunlight of God's word. So we have to be wise Christians. We have to be wise believers who test our lives for the wax of hypocrisy. When held up to the light of God's word, the presence or absence of sinful cracks will be apparent. That's why it's so important for us to feed daily on scripture and allow our lives to be shaped by its power. I am shocked. I don't. Maybe I should need to quit being shocked. But I am shocked when I Joel will give me some new counseling cases, and I'll sit down with people, and usually in the first session, I'll ask a question of, "Tell me about your personal time with the Lord." Well, I don't do that anymore. What do you mean anymore? I've gotten away from that. I, you know, I pretty. I've been going to church for ten, fifteen years. I know the Bible pretty well. I don't. I don't do that anymore. Wow. You know, wow. I I mean, we have to be a people that feed daily on Scripture. If you don't eat, what happens? You physically die. Well, if you don't eat spiritually, you're going to spiritually die as well. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
If we want to walk without stumbling, we must pay attention to where we're going. We must pay attention to where we put our feet. In 2011, my wife and I were blessed to be able to go down and serve with the Dowdies in Mexico City. And as we're walking around the city, I noticed that you have to look where you walk there. You know why? Because the sidewalk is so uneven. I mean, you might have a brick sticking up three inches, and the next one's down four. Well, you know, you could stub something and fall down flat on your face if you're not paying attention there. I said to Jim, I said, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, this whole city was built on a lake bed. Wow, I wonder what engineers designed that. But anyway, and this is a city of 26 million people, and, and, and it's sinking. You can go in the buildings there, and they shift. The pillars, the lights, you know, well, the, the, you look up there, and it's in the center of the building, and you look down the light, it's way over there. The place is sinking. You have to pay attention to where you walk or you're going to stub your toe. And if you're not paying attention to where you walk, even when the path before us looks very smoothly, we're going to stumble because we're living in a world that has been booby-trapped deliberately by Satan. We're walking through a minefield which Satan has laid his snares. And the only safety is for us to walk where Jesus walked, in his footsteps. And we learn that through his word. He walked through the world, and he never stumbled. He knows the right way to walk. And, of course, we're instructed in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But if you're like me, sometimes the other way, what? It just seems easier. And who's going to know anyway, right? You know, I'm often reminded when I have that thought of my favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian and Hopeful are beat up, their feet are bleeding, they've been walking on this rough, rocky path, and they stop and they look, and there's a nice, lush, in my days today, I would think there's just a zoysia lawn there that's just manicured. Man, would it feel good to walk over there rather than over here where we're at. And they make the decision, let's do it. It's smoother. And, well, you know the story. They end up in Doubting Castle, captured by the giant despair and locked up in his dungeon. And it was a woe is me for a good while, wasn't it? If we'd only stayed on that rough path, well, as you know, the story unfolds and the Lord, through the power of prayer, um, releases them from there. But they, they had a hard lesson to learn, and we can save ourselves perhaps some hard lessons if we'll stay on God's path. We need to pay attention to where we're walking. The, the second word that Paul uses in Philippians 1.10 concerning integrity is blameless. This describes relational integrity typified by a person who won't do anything to cause others to stumble. Um, I, my wife and I recently, in ministering with a young lady, were trying to instruct her, this is, you need to do this this way. Why? Why? Because you may cause somebody else to stumble. I don't care what anybody else thinks or does. That's not my responsibility. Well, yes, it is, right? And that's what blameless here is, that we not cause others to stumble, and, and God's word is quite clear about this. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. In general, the integrity that Paul prays for Christians to possess will not only be pure and blameless, but will disregard the world's standards and the world's wisdom. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 27, 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people. Now you might be thinking, well, I hadn't cheated on my wife or I hadn't cheated on my husband. No, but we've all cheated on God. And that's what he's talking about here. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty strong language. An enemy of God. John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, it boils down to this. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. There's no such thing as a Sunday morning only Christian. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.12, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and good godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world. You know, Paul, in his integrity, what he had in mind was not temporary or fleeting. Instead, he tells us in verse 10 that we should pursue this throughout our lives for the day of Christ. And that day of Christ is the future time when, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear, we must all appear, we must all, guess what? That's all of us, right? Appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the day that the truth will be revealed about every one of us. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, on that day, God will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. That's the day when it's all coming out. We might want blinders, but we're not going to have them. We're going to face that. If we've been diligent to cultivate integrity as well as divine love and excellence, we will have unsurpassed joy on the day of Christ as, as the Lord rewards us according to our faithfulness. Our pursuit of godliness, if we follow the scriptural pattern, will inevitably lead us from integrity to good works. That is the fruit of righteousness that Paul mentions in verse 11. The New Testament mentions two basic varieties of spiritual fruit that every, every, every Christian should produce. One is the the, uh, souls, one to Christ. And Paul refers to that in his letter to the Romans. He says in one thirteen of Romans, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, the second kind of spiritual fruit is righteous deeds and attitudes. For instance, in Ephesians 5, 9, he says, The fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The only way that we'll ever have enough strength, enough wisdom, and enough faithfulness to produce real spiritual fruit is through Jesus Christ. Without him, we're not going to have that. That's why he says in verse 11 of Philippians 1, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And that can only happen when we abide in Christ. As he himself said in John 15, 1 through 5, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the area of the Christian life where our commitment to integrity is actually put to the test. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Paul tells us this all points towards the pursuing the glory of our God. All that the apostle prayed for the Philippians' progress in godliness was ultimately to the glory and the praise of God. That kind of goal was always in view when Paul instructed believers as when he exhorted the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, for you've been bought with a price, therefore what? Do whatever you want? No, glorify God in your body. A life of love, excellence, integrity, good works will always glorify the Lord. The word from which we get that English term glory in the Greek refers to the totality of God's perfection. When he receives glory, it is also an affirmation of his perfection. When we manifest godliness, it will bring glory to God. It's been said that the world takes its notions of God, most of all from people, who say that they belong to the family of God. They read us a great deal more than they'll read any Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus. I heard years and years ago that Gandhi said, I might consider becoming a Christian if I didn't know so many of them. Now, we know theologically that's impossible. He's not going to become a Christian unless God calls him to become a Christian. But think about that for a minute. He knew so many Christians that he didn't want to have any part in Christianity. That is a horrible testimony. That is not bringing glory to God. The basis for our presenting a credible witness for Christ to the world is therefore not so much what we say, it's what we do. That ought to be an extremely strong warning to you parents, right? Your children are watching, they're watching, they're watching. Well, my dad does da-da-da-da-da, the pastor says da-da-da-da-da, the two don't line up. Well, I'm with dad all the time. You know, what he's doing has got to be right. Your children are watching. Jesus expressed it this way in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We must, we've just seen that it is impossible to manifest the qualities of godliness apart from abiding in Christ and obediently following his word. But those two important areas of activity, guess what? Here's where it really, the rubber meets the road. They require effort and discipline on our part. There is no such thing as let go and let God. Doesn't work. When was the last time you tried that? Did it keep you from sinning? Absolutely not. Oh, God, please help me not to look at that thing on TV. You open your eyes back up, it's still there. Pick up the remote and change the channel. That's how you do it. You take some effort on yourself, right? Paul told Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And the the ESV says, train yourself. The word discipline yourself, train yourself, comes from the Greek word gymnazo. If you go to the gym and you don't sweat, don't go. You're not doing enough, right? You got to push yourself when you're there. I go, I sweat, I don't get many results, but... um, (laughs) You know, I have started to notice that I feel better later in the day on the days that I've gone. 
We have to discipline ourselves. We have to train ourselves. Godly people are disciplined people. They're trained people. And, you know, it has always been that way. I don't know why we're living in a generation now that thinks that you don't have to. The Apostle Peter put it into perspective. I mean, this is all over the Bible. The fundamental challenge we face in living disciplined lives, when he actually admonished us in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you, that's a strong word, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Peter calls us aliens and strangers here because our true citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. That's why it ought to feel uncomfortable for you when you're out there in the world. This is not your home. Heavenly citizenship is a great privilege the Lord gives us, but it requires us to live by God's standard, not by the world's standards. The opening phrase there, aliens and strangers, he uses words that, that place us in a foreign country or at least traveling through a foreign land. You know, the weirdest thing used to happen to me when I was in the Army, you could be stationed on a beach in Hawaii, and all you ever talked about was being short. That doesn't mean you're short in stature. That means short in time left. I mean, if you had a year there, you were counting it off. Best, most beautiful duty assignment in the world, and you couldn't wait to get home. I, I struggled with that thought, but you know what? I couldn't wait to get home. Why? Because I didn't belong there. That's not where I was from. You know, that's why our soldiers in Afghanistan, why do they walk out of the barracks or their tents or whatever in the morning with their equipment on? They don't belong there. There's enemies there that are trying to shoot them. And if the enemy doesn't shoot you, your sergeant's going to have your, yourself in trouble, right? We, we don't belong there. I mean, we're there for a purpose. I'm not talking about the war. We don't belong here on this earth. Right? This is not it. And um, I've, you know, I'm getting a little older now, and I've started to realize that a lot more recently. You know, I can't wait. You know, there's something much better than as much as I love it here, there's something much, much, much better. And as I've heard John MacArthur say, the greatest thing of heaven, guess what, is not walking down the streets kicking up gold dust. The greatest thing is the flat out absence of sin. Right? I mean, I can't wait till the day that I can do something and not be tempted to do the wrong thing. I don't belong here. Therefore, I conduct myself as an alien, a stranger here. This is not my home. You know, while on earth there, there's, there's spiritual... Um, while, while we're here on earth, our spiritual life places us in sharp contrast to unbelievers around us who have different beliefs, different values, different morals. We can truly only feel at home when we arrive in heaven. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 14 says, for, for here, meaning here on earth, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. As people who are on a pilgrimage, we are to abstain, he says, from fleshly desires. We are to keep away from the strong desires of our sinful nature. Being saved by grace does not instantly and automatically remove struggles from our lives. We still face a spiritual battle against various urges that want to lead us into sin. Such desires can come to us in a lot of different forms and tempt us in a variety of ways. Paul lists some of them as immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. In clear contrast to all that, we must discipline ourselves toward godliness 
and spiritual maturity. Listen to what Peter pens in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. He says, seeing that his divine power has. I love that. I love the past tense words in the Bible. Those give me hope. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to this. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lustful desires. If we strive faithfully and diligently with the Lord's help to cultivate an inner spiritual discipline, that discipline will reveal itself in our behavior. You know, parents, we always want good behavior in our kids. This is the way you get it. If we consistently display the highest scriptural standard of behavior and unwavering integrity before unbelievers, it will, we're promised by scripture, have an impact on their lives. For example, in 1 Peter 3, a believing wife through her godly, respectful behavior may be used by the Holy Spirit to win her unbelieving husband to Christ. All believers, whether at home, school, or work, should be pursuing godliness and showing forth good works to those around them. By observing such conduct conduct over a period of time, some unbelievers will, as 1 Peter says, Glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, when the Holy Spirit visits a non-Christian and opens his heart, that person many times will remember the godly behavior and influence of a dedicated Christian who, was, who had responded to their needs in life. One of the primary means our Lord uses to proclaim his truth and build his church is godly believers, those who have built lives of integrity, through consistent obedience to God. Compromise with the world and its attractions beckons each one of us every moment of every day. But its appeals cannot compete with the reasons God gives to build an intimate relationship with him. Well, in closing, we must remain steadfast and loyal to the authority of God's word and obey God's commands with a loving, willing, and submissive spirit. These few verses in Philippians chapter 1 give us insight into Paul's prayers for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He converted his jail cell into a room of prayer. When he prayed, those prison walls became alive with the sound of the supplications of Paul. He took the throne of God by storm so that God's people might be unmatched in their devotion to Christ, so that God's people may be sound in their doctrine of Christ, and so that God's people may be sincere in their demonstration of Christ as they walk through this earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we also would be a people who are known by those around us as men and women who are unmatched, our devotion to Christ our Savior. Lord, help us to love others with the same love that you've shown to us, a love that is divine, a love that is decisive, a love that is dynamic, deep, and discerning. We thank you that you've given us your precious word as our manual for life. We thank you that you've empowered us with the indwelling spirit. Father, we have no excuses. 
I pray that we would be men and women, boys and girls, that set our minds on being a people of integrity that desire to glorify you in all that we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.